Imagine change unconstrained by our individual understandings of what is possible. This is All of Us on WNHH, New Haven's independent radio station. I'm Greg Grinberg. In our previous conversations, we've talked with the Yale professor of history and author, the Connecticut State Senator, and two of New Haven's most impressive political activists. We've talked about climate change, an existential threat to all life on Earth. We've talked about powerful political institutions that have grown beyond our political control, including our police forces across the country and right here in New Haven. Yet, in every crisis is the seed of an opportunity, and today that's what we're talking about. Our guest today is Matthew Nemerson, Economic Development Administrator for the City of New Haven, and before that, he was for 10 years President of the Connecticut Technology Council. We'll be talking today about economic development as a tool of economic equality, and how we can use it to much more fully become a community of ever-increasing freedom and opportunity for everyone who lives here. Matt, thank you so much for having this conversation with us today. So Matt, today I want to uh, just kind of start with asking you, for the listeners who don't know what you do, what does, what does economic development within the city of New Haven actually do? Well, anybody who listens to the radio station probably reads Paul's online newspaper, so they know what I do. But, mm. but I'll be happy to talk about that. Um, you know, the city's governments are set up in, in different silos, and... The most important things that we do are protect people uh, and educate people and uh, get the snow off the ground and pick up the garbage. Uh, But behind the scenes, there's a a whole range of things that happen in terms of people planning, uh, in terms of what the future of the city is going to look like, where the roads are going to go, where the buildings are going to be, how big those buildings are. Um, There are a lot of things that we do to make sure the buildings that go up are safe. We saw a situation in Oakland a few weeks ago where, Mm. where that wasn't the case. And, um, and then there are real fun things that we do, uh, which is we talk to people who uh, want to invest in the city. And these aren't just people who are buying a house uh, or moving into a rental apartment. I think they're going to switch my mic right here, get a little bit more consistent. <laughs> Nothing like neighborhood radio. Um, and, uh, you, you know, the fun stuff is that there are people uh, who travel around the world uh, and certainly around uh, New England and around Southern uh, Connecticut um, who want to make money uh, by investing in new projects. And uh, there are businesses that are always scouting for the best location in which to uh, move their business to. And so that whole process of competing for other, for, uh, with other places of trying to attract folks who, um, who are looking to build a new building, uh, and that could be a commercial building that's going to house a business. It could be an industrial building that's going to be built specifically for a factory or some process, or trying to big ha- build housing. And housing comes in many, many different shapes and forms. It could be affordable. Uh, it could be government-sponsored so that someone at a certain income level can afford to live there. It could be market rate. Market rate apartments can be rented, they can be purchased, or they can become part of a, a mutual or condominium or co-op uh, association. So it's very, very interesting. It's also interesting how my voice keeps going up and down. <laughs> so I don't know what the problem here is. Let's try that. Maybe that's a little bit better. Well, you know, what, what I'm told is that we need to be very intimate with the mics here. So um, right. you might want to just kind of get really up close and personal with the mic. Well, uh, I can do that. Yeah. So just, Harry, turn down my the sounds, pot a little sounds bit better. A little bit too hot. Okay, so um, so all of these things are 
sort of behind the scenes part of running a city. Uh, you know, clearly the safety, the education, the snow removal, all of that is, uh, is what most people think about cities and that's where most of their taxes go. But, but the truth is if you're going to have new revenues coming in, you have to grow. A city um, is like any kind of organism. It, it has to keep changing and it has to be competitive with other places and it has to be able to get uh, a lot of money invested in it. Now, New Haven has an advantage that many, many cities don't have which is we have large anchor institutions. We've always had large anchor institutions. We've had huge factories. We had Winchester, we had Armstrong, we had Gantt Shirt. Um, we had the Sergeant Lock Company. Most of those are now gone. Uh, we're left, uh, Sergeant is still here. But what's happened over the last 50 years is that the small little college that we had here, um, which used to occupy 20, 30 acres in downtown and spread out, now is this huge uh, multi-billion dollar organization that is an adjunct healthcare organization, which is itself multi-billion. And so we cohabitate this space with this international organization that itself is investing hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year and it has to be managed in such in the same way that the people were competing to bring their money in have to be managed. Fortunately, there's less competition for the Yale money mm-hmm. because you know they have to raise it in a different way. But, sure. but once they decide to do that, they'll spend it here. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things affect how jobs are created uh, and attracted, and they affect uh, how much we can tax all of these investments and the relative taxation between the people who live here and the people who work here and the people who have processes here to do things, whether those processes are to educate people or those processes are to build locks or computer software or drugs or whatever. And that's the fun part. So, so that creates sort of this balance, this ecosystem that people look at as whether the city is healthy, growing, competitive or not. And absolutely. So, so that's what we do. We, we do all of those kinds of things and everything is interconnected. Workforce is interconnected with attractiveness to people who are moving jobs here. Jobs are connected to what kind of businesses can sell things to people for lunch, for dinner, um, or whatever. And, um, this becomes the complexity of an urban environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as a startup entrepreneur myself, um, I'm often asked, why are you in New Haven? You know, why why are you not in New York or Boston or, let's get right to it, Silicon Valley? Um, and my answer to that is that the culture here is very favorable to social enterprise. And that's what I'm trying to do. That uh, that here, six years ago, when I, when I even used the, the, the phrase social entrepreneurship, I found that generally people in New Haven knew what I was talking about already um, and uh, had actually thought a great deal about how how uh, innovation can be used as a tool, even even when it's return, there's return-based capital backing innovation, it can be used as a tool uh, to promote the general welfare. And um, in New York and Boston six years ago, I, I found that that was, that was not nearly so universally the case, that people, you know, kind of looked at social enterprise as this kind of like newfangled thing that they'd maybe heard about, but it seemed like kind of a, a really crunchy idea. Um, 
That said, it, it makes me really happy when I hear people talking about bringing investment into New Haven because social enterprise or not, whether it's return-based capital or philanthropic capital, that's, that is key for any uh, organization that's, that's getting off um, the ground. So, you know, I'm curious to hear uh, from you, uh, you know, the kinds of investments that I think that, you know, the city tends to, um, you know, to, to bring in, you know, are, you know, the, the kind that you were talking about before. We're talking about real estate investments, you know, you know, very, very large um, investments in, you know, sometimes infusions of capital into companies that have existed for a long time. But wh- how do you see the um, the state of entrepreneurship here in New Haven and the sort of attractiveness of New Haven um, as, uh, you know, as a place for uh, for that kind of capital, um, you know, now and, and in the future, in the in the immediate future? Yeah, so as you know, I've been working on this for 33 years. I started at Science Park in 1983 mm-hmm. uh, when it was an old rifle factory and uh, with the dream that it could be turned into a, an incubator center uh, and a center for professors at Yale and to expand outside of the academy and for people to sort of move here to start businesses. Um, I think Haven can legitimately say that it's it's as competitive as any place between Boston and New York. Um, we're clearly nowhere near the same league as, as Boston or New York. Uh, but once you sort of get out of Brooklyn or get this side of Brookline, um, you know, we think we can compete with Providence. We can compete with Hartford, Stamford. In fact, we think we're much better. And we think that there's a sort of a more nuanced ecosystem here. Now, we don't actually make investments in startup companies. You know, we just try to create an environment that people, other people, um, will will do that. And so it turns out that that you know you're a good example of. It takes two things, really three things, to make this environment work. One is you have to be thinking about what is a an attractive city offer to someone who wants to start up a company. So you want inexpensive space. Mm-hmm. You want um, there to be people around who, if you were successful enough to get going, you could hire. Uh, and you have to be able to convince people who will be investing money in your company that you've made a wise decision to be here. Absolutely. And it turns out that's the most important thing, that there are lots of people who actually want to stay where they grew up, mm-hmm. want to stay where they went to school, want to stay in a specific town that they just happen to love. But the people who have to invest in that company and the people who will work for that company might think that that person is nuts to want to start a company there. So it takes both a lot of people who want to pick a specific place and then it takes other people who think that was a wise decision. Right. And so New Haven over the last 30 years has had many, many people who, because of their connections to the university or because this was less expensive than Boston or New York or because they grew up in Cheshire or they grew up in New Haven, thought, what a great place to start a company. And for a lot of time, people thought, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but again, over the last 30 years, that's grown and grown and grown. And I think now there is nobody who thinks that it's a bad idea to start a company here. Now, occasionally, actually not in an infrequently a company will get to a size where it will have to hire 50 or a hundred people in a specific area of 
technology and the investment community will say it's not enough people for you to hire there and you're not going to be able to attract that many people in a short period of time and so we really can't invest 10 or 20 or 100 million dollars in your company if it's going to be a new haven because we just can't grow quickly enough so we've been spending a lot of time trying to get to critical mass trying to have enough people in the area and so that's what we're very very excited about alexion which was two people 20 years ago and now is 1,200 and is moving to 1,700. We're very excited about having a lot of software companies that were once two or three people that now, like Technolutions uh, or Continuity or Cyclic Fix, are moving to 30 and 40 and 50 and 80 people. Because what happens is, you know, once you have thousands of people working, then it just becomes a lot easier to convince somebody else that you could add 100 people. When you have 100 people or 200 people, it's hard to add a hundred people, but when you have thousands Absolutely. and thousands of people, and so we want more people um, like you who will say, this is just a great place to start my business, whether it's in food distribution and thinking about business models for food or whether it's developing a new software company or combining the two things to make those things work better. Um, and we're just hoping for critical mass. We're hoping that we will have a few more Alexions so we get the big hits of a couple thousand people that will have more technolutions, that will have a few more 100, 150-person companies, and that we want yours to sort of flourish here so we become known as a place where you can just take a dream and, and make it work. Absolutely. I mean, that that is the dream. And the, so, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of, of, I'm thinking about what you said before about how all these things are connected, you know, and your point about software engineers, you know, or the, the critical mass of uh, of potential employees um, in, in any particular discipline. But for me, the, the thing that hits home is software engineers, of course, because that's predominantly who we are looking for. And, uh, you know, we, on the point that all of these things are connected, you know, Facebook and Google, um, of course, scoop up a lot of the really great top-tier software engineers. But, and, and, they're, and they're so hungry for super capable software engineers that they even, at this point are going to high schools and they're looking they're 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 actually looking at at kids who have never taken a college level cs course in their life but they're completely self-taught and they're willing to sort of trade aptitude for uh, for experience in this case they're willing to say okay we're actually going to hire you not as an intern but as a software engineer um and we're going to pay you over a hundred thousand dollars a year and we're going to fill in the holes of what you don't know, but you're pretty much self-taught, so you can kind of hit the ground running. And that's that's not the norm, of course. This happens every once in a while. Well, but you, you know, know, Greg, it, it is actually becoming the norm because, and it's one of the issues, I know the subtopic of today's conversation is equality and, exactly. and, and opportunity. But look, um, as you get into the sort of the advanced stages of a cycle, of a business cycle, and, and you know, the, the personal computer was sort of rolled out in 1978 and became sort of popular when IBM came out in 81. Sure. Um, so we're now talking 35 years. That's a generation. Mm -hmm. So that's a long time. And what happens when an industry gets to that point is <clears throat> it begins to look a lot more like the NBA um, and not like running a farm. In other words, when software first got going, People really didn't know what they were doing. They could get a shovel and they could plant something and maybe it would work. And it was just, it was exciting. Um, now, software companies are looking for the one in a thousand person, the one in 10,000 right. person who can move some small operation to make Google slightly 
more effective at selling things more dramatically more effective than amazon well right but but as we've seen and there have been a lot of articles there's one in the journal last week um the, the the ability to do innovation now takes an order of magnitude more effort it takes a thousand times more effort to do something that used to take 10x now takes a thousand x in drugs it's taking 10,000 x it takes 10,000 hours of of scientific time to right. do something that used to take 100 hours so what that means is that the great companies are like the MBA they they will absolutely go to a high school they will absolutely try to find the talent, the 15-year-old, the because they can tell the person who's just going to be much, much better 10 years down the road or five years down the road. And uh, it's not good enough just to be a member of the computer club. You have to have rewritten all the software for all of the grading for your entire state to sort of hit the radar right. for Microsoft now. Right. Um, and um, so that's part of the problem, uh, is that it's... It's, the bar is much higher than it used to be for everybody. And for you to be able to compete um, in your business, you have to not just have a good idea, but you have to have people who have simply enormous talent to be able to convert that into something that will actually give your company uh, valuation within the context of a Y Combinator or the, you know, or Sand Hill Road, the, the investment community, Absolutely. or the accelerator community. And, um, and so that's why getting to that critical mass is very important. Uh, Alexion is growing, but it is very clear that they are scouring the world uh, to find the next 500 people that they bring to New Haven. Right. And our challenge is we would like those, a number of those people who get hired there to come up through our ecosystem, to come up through our high schools, our colleges, and whatever. And, um, and that's just getting harder and harder to do. And we're, we're trying to figure out that whole formula of how do you create opportunity from something that becomes more rarefied and more global. Absolutely. Well, it seems to me that it sort of starts with exposure in the sense that we have, you know, we, I mean, uh, so starting in here in New Haven, we have, you know, our starting point is that we have tremendous, uh, economic inequality here. And that's just borne out by the statistics, but what we also have are tremendously smart kids going through the school system. And we could have 10 or 25, you know, such kids who are capable of actually working at Google or Facebook, given the right exposure early on. Um, and we would never know it. We could have we could have 10 or 25 kids graduating every year who are at that level. Um, but because they're not seeing computer science in the curriculum, it's really difficult to, I mean, it, it, there's, I mean, and, and that's really the difference, right? I mean, I mean, you know, there's... Yeah, I'm not you know, sure yeah. that's actually the case. You know, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think that's what people think. I mean, I think, I think, I think in a public school system like New Haven's, you have great teachers, you have so many schools and so many different opportunities. You don't have these big sprawling 5,000 person middle schools and high schools as you have in the Midwest or in other parts of New England. You know, New Haven has a boutique system, and I think that the talent is seen, and I think people are scooped up. Now, sometimes they're scooped up and sent off to private school. Um, I know we have a big debate about whether some of them end up at charter schools because their parents are pushing them and they enter the lottery and things like that. Um, but I, I think it's it's unusual that we would lose talent here. We've got the Promise program so that you've got scouts uh, within that whole effort that are sort of looking at people once they hit the ninth and 10th grade. 
um, you know, I'm, I'm less worried about losing talented people than I am about a different issue, which is that, um, you know, why do we have the inequality that we have here? Um, and the inequality that we have is not because it is because of the, the wonderful uh, opportunity that cities provide people who are not given opportunities in other places. In other words, you know, there's a pretty random and equal distribution of wealthy and talented people across the country because they're sought after and they can live wherever they want. They can live in the countryside, they can live in the suburbs, they can live downtown New Haven. But, you know, we've really seen that over the last 20 years, certainly the last 10 years, that communities have tried to make it as uh, difficult as possible for uh, poorer people who, you know, don't come from the advantages and, and maybe coming to the country for the first time or coming to an area for the first time. There are fewer and fewer places for them to live. That's why we're a sanctuary city here. There's, it's very hard. There's very little affordable housing in the suburbs in Connecticut. So it isn't that the city uh, is creating inequality. It is that it's seeking it. You know, what makes New Haven special is that we want that traumatic inequality. We want the Nobel Prize uh, winner from Yale to live on Everett Street. And at the same time, we want four blocks away in New Hallville there to be very affordable housing and someone who just showed up from another country or another state or someone whose family has been deprived of economic opportunity because factories have left. We want them to be able to stay here until they get those opportunities. So we seek inequality. I think people sometimes think of it as a, as a problem that somehow it shows that the city is not functioning properly. Unless we were to get rid of affordable housing, no amount of success, if one half of the city that started the year poor ended up the year rich, they would leave and move, many of them, and more people who saw an opportunity would move to their neighborhoods. It's the nature of cities. And so I think we look at it as a negative. I, I think we have to say, this is what makes New Haven a wonderful contributor to society and to the world. And so that's why cities have to be supported. Because, you know, with all due respect, the people in Cheshire don't get up every day and say, how can we have our city split between people who are doing very well, are global, make a lot of money, and people who are looking for opportunity and didn't come, don't have a lot of money and need affordable housing and make it 50-50 and let's, let's have that balance. We do that every morning. We say, how do we make this work? Other cities say, nah, I think 100 zero looks good to me, not 50-50. Right. So you're describing a dynamic process. And I'm, you know, curious, I mean, then so so and which means it's a rate problem, which means that you want to be lifting people out of poverty as quickly as possible as you know, and, 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 and hopefully, hopefully, well, you just want to do that as quickly as possible, period. I mean, that's the goal, right? So the so the I mean, so so to take one example, but it's invisible. It's invisible. In what sense? Well, because, because people can do well and move. They can move up the ladder. They can move to West Haven. They can move to Hamden. They can move to Orange. They can move back to South Carolina. They can move back to Ecuador. And they might be already middle class. They might have gotten that education. They might have done things. They might have found an opportunity. They could have moved to Seattle. Their spot will be filled by somebody else, perhaps coming from where they came from, perhaps moving from another neighborhood. It, it, you're right. It's a dynamic. But, but because there's so much pressure enough to, to maintain the affordability, to not gentrify out the way some cities have. Right. To really keep this balance, 
this happens because a lot of people are going to move to another city at some point. Now, some people don't. And so, uh, you know, there's also, there's tension within the neighborhoods as well in terms of gentrifying that goes on within the neighborhoods themselves. And these are, these are a lot of the, sort of the dynamics and the ebbs and flows of cities uh, over 50, 100 years. Right, absolutely. So, as, so as, a, as a direct employer, it seems like the city has some opportunities that, uh, that, that I, I'm not sure if the city is taking advantage of, but I'm, I'm, it, the, these have been coming up in the community conversations that we've been having following the election. Um, so one, one suggestion that's been brought up is having sort of preferential hiring for people who live in the city. Anytime the city is hiring either directly or through a contractor to, to all other things being equal, hire the person who lives here in the city. I'm curious, is that something that already happens? Is that an idea that's on the table? I mean, where, where is that in sort of the, in, in the way that the city thinks about, um, economic equality? Well, let's look at that. There are 1.7 million jobs in Connecticut. There are 380,000 jobs that people can get to from a bus or driving within about 45 minutes. There are 80,000 oh, jobs. New Haven. In, of New Haven. Right. There are 80,000 jobs in New Haven. Mm-hmm. And I think something like 35,000 of them are filled by New Haveners. So that's 35,000 versus 1.7 million. What if every city said we only want to hire from people who live in our city? That'd be a real problem. What if every part of Southern Connecticut said we only want to have people from our neighborhoods or our towns uh, working here, not from New Haven. So I think we have to be careful what we wish for. Maybe 35,000 jobs that New Haveners can fill in New Haven, maybe 40,000, maybe a million outside of New Haven. That would be a very dangerous ratio if we really started to have a litmus test that, that we wanted every city to only hire people who lived in that city. The second thing is, when I was at Science Park, we had those rules and we, we made sure that that wherever we could and and all of the maintenance jobs that we had and all of the internal jobs that we had all went to New Haveners. We would go back after six or seven months and we would check the statistics and we found that after six or seven months, people lived in Hamden, which is right near Science Park. People lived in West Haven with their brother-in-law. People lived in other places. And they said, well, you know, the school system was a little bit better. And again, this was back in the 80s. Or, you know, I could move into a slightly better house. You know, so... What we found is that we gave people opportunity who hadn't had opportunity and they started making more money and they suddenly realized maybe they were getting, they were going back to community college and getting a degree. Some of them didn't choose to live in New Haven. Now, the interesting thing is if you work on Long Wharf, let's say it's Sargent, West Haven is closer to your factory uh, than Dixwell is. Sure. So what are we really saying about this? These towns, uh, in the Midwest towns are 300 square miles. Um, and so when you travel to the far ends of Columbus or Louisville or Indianapolis, you're traveling 10 miles, 15, 18 miles, just to go in one direction. Uh, New Haven's 18 square miles. Sure. Uh, New Haven would be a neighborhood in Yonkers. Right. Uh, and so I think it's very, very important that we give people opportunities, but I would, I would, be, I would be held accountable if I didn't try to make it possible for someone who lives in New Hallville to get a great, great job working at Exit 9 shops out in North Haven uh, or get them to a factory in Wallingford, and I only focused on finding the very few jobs that happen to be available in New Haven and, and, and have those for New Haveners. So I hear the idea, but I don't think that's a public policy that actually in the long run uh, works for, for folks the way it should. And, 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 and look, I've got to be honest, too. Um, 
my daughter graduated from college in May. She's working in Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been hard or impossible for her to get a job in New Haven. Now, I don't like the fact that she's far away, see her here and there, but she's got a great job. I wouldn't want Trenton to have said, oh no, only people who live in Trenton can have jobs in Trenton or in Princeton can go and have a job in Trenton. So it's a very complicated issue. Sure, sure. So let's also talk a little bit about, um, from the small business standpoint, I obviously, being um, an entrepreneur, entrepreneur myself, I end up talking with a lot of others, and I've, I've sort of heard the struggles. This is not a struggle that I've had personally, but it's one. It's a familiar story that I've heard a lot, which is that, uh, and it really sort of centers around um, negotiating with landlords and um, and finding a suitable space for, uh, you know, for a rather small operation, you know, something that's, that's, you know, maybe a new idea, something that you want to just, you know, test it out. And, um, you know, I, I see that, you know, for, you know, for, you know, for our fabrication facility at actual food, I mean, we actually, we went to Ansonia because that's where we could find what we needed and we could find, you know, where we had a lease that sort of checked all the boxes for us. Um, in New Haven, I'm sort of, I, I kind of read some of the leases that, um, that, you know, some of, you know, these people have signed and I'm, kind of shocked by some of the, some of the provisions of the leases. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it, which it, is when none of this is your fault, obviously. Oh no, you know, it is, it, it's not a question of fault. It's just a question of mathematics. Um, Ansonia is 12 square miles. Derby mm-hmm. is four square miles. New Haven mm-hmm. is 18 square miles. These are tiny places. And the way new England developed uh, in the 19th century was that the factories developed along the rivers and, um, you know, we're fortunate that we have some rivers uh, to the north uh, of us. And so we have industrial areas. Um, New Haven uh, has been greatly redeveloped uh, between I-95 and I-91 and all of the work that was done in the 50s and 60s to uh, modernize the city. Um, we've lost probably 50 or 60 or 70 percent of our old factory buildings. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that a new building requires higher rents. Uh, it tends, we've been moving for the last 30, 40 years in zoning and in land development to have uh, sort of mono uses of buildings, you know, one tenant, one kind of use. Well, that's a retail building. That's a factory building. That's a housing building. Not like in the old days when over a hundred years, an old brick building might change from being housing to being manufacturing, to being storage, back to manufacturing and ends up as a loft somewhere. So what we're dealing with here is um, trying to not uh, destroy the great opportunities that we have to find inexpensive space by being so successful. Right. So people buy old buildings and they turn them into housing or they turn them into storage units uh, or they turn them into a Yale laboratory or they tear them down and turn them into a brand new building for the hospital uh, for an office building or whatever. Um, you know, if you go down downtown New Haven, one of the most charming buildings is the Foundry Building on the corner of Audubon and Whitney Avenue. We love that building. Yeah. Um, and the streets used to be filled with buildings like that. I challenge anybody to find another building like the Foundry Building, you know, in the downtown. It just, they don't exist anymore. They've been torn down. They became parking lots. If they didn't become parking lots, they became new uh, office buildings or whatever. So this is what we're trying to figure out do we keep the charm how do we keep the affordability and also be successful and also continue to grow and get that investment 
So we're really trying to think that out. We actually hired a consultant who said, you know, the problem with old post-industrial build, uh, cities is that their their success kills their ability to grow. Right. Because everybody comes in, wants to live in a loft apartment in an old foundry building. And then when they look around and they want to put their business in an old foundry building, they look around, they go, oops, mm-hmm. there are no more. So we're really trying to think this through. How do we create affordability? Um, we have some wonderful opportunities, I think, in Lower Chapel Street, there's some big buildings there. Um, we're obviously always looking around Worcester Square. Um, we have a building called the District, which is an old bus barn, which is going to be converted into a $100,000 high-tech building. Um, there's a building across the street, which uh, might be storage, but it also might be a more affordable space. Some of these buildings are very polluted. It's very expensive to clean them up. So, you know, we made a lot of money in old factory buildings in the 1880s, 90s, early part of the last century. Uh, but then you walk in the door, and we were just meeting with somebody today with an old building that they were about to buy. $5 million right. to clean it up. The building, under the best of circumstances, worth a couple million. Mm-hmm. When you add the $5 million, the value of the building is probably negative $3 million. Right. So we have to get money from the state, from the federal government. We have to put some money in. These are very complicated things to say, oh, yes, we'd like to develop that, put your high-tech business into this. But first, someone's got to spend $3 million that they'll never get back right. to clean up all the pollution from a factory that went out of business 120 years ago. Mm-hmm. These are very complicated things for cities. That's why the state uh, has sprawled out, why there's so much new construction in like a Wallingford or a Shelton. Um, that's why the country builds these brand-new industrial parks in Kentucky and in New Jersey and whatever, because it's easier to take an old farmer's field, a hundred acres, put new buildings there, put a, put new utilities, uh, put a road there, use up all of those amazing resources that will cost $5 million than it is to convince yourself to take an old building right. that hasn't been used for 50 years, put the $5 million there uh, in Weehawken or in Norwalk or in New Haven, and sort of make it work. And these are conversations that we have to have. It's very sad to see, you know, I think the, the incoming administration in Washington may not look at the world that way. Right. You know, we've had great administrations, the Clinton administration, the Carter administration, that totally got that, put tons of money in. The Obama administration has put lots of money into programs, the Tiger program, uh, urban redevelopment programs, uh, affordable housing programs that, that emphasize putting money into cities. And, and so that's very, very important. These are, these are really difficult decisions. And so to keep a company like yours here, there's this whole wealth of connections and, and different things that have to happen so that you do have that affordable space. And then someone's got to take an old office building and chop it up and make it work. Absolutely. And if you're listening on WNHH Live, uh, we're going to be cutting over to Laveau's, and the conversation will continue uh, on, uh, on the podcast uh, available at soundcloud.com. So, Matt, I, I'm, so, so yeah, your point is really well taken, that uh, it's easier to start from zero than, say, negative three million. Right, but think about the loss to society. Think of the loss of the environment. Think of the loss of be able to walk to, to work, uh, people being able to bicycle to work, people being able to uh, stay in their own culture without having to sort of go to sort of the soulless suburbs where they just sort of go into a big industrial park. Imagine still being able to work in a factory where some of the people speak your language mm-hmm. um, or watch the same TV shows mm-hmm. as you. I mean, there's, there's so much energy in culture 
So the diversity is important, but also the, the, the culture and the enclave nature of cities is very important too. And people do want to feel that specialness. So, so Absolutely. you can only get that really in a city. You don't really get that in sort of the sort of truck and car oriented former farming fields that are turned into retail centers and industrial centers and office parks and things. Cities are really where the soul of the country is or any society is. And uh, when it's as complex as New Haven with the diversity issues, but also the inequality issues, it's just very powerful. Absolutely. I mean, there is something incredibly special about being able to walk down the street and bump into three or four people who, you know, you were meaning to touch base with anyway, you know, and just the, the amount of things that can happen in a day, it's so much greater the more people you have in, you know, in, in walking distance. Well, for you and me, that's certainly true. Um, but it's also true to bump into people who in a million years, you'd never know that you wouldn't have them at your house or you didn't go to school with them. And also to be able to talk to them and be comfortable with them and maybe have coffee with them and talk yes. about what their dreams are. That only happens really in cities. And sometimes it has to be curated. Sometimes you need to have nonprofit organizations that sort of create all of that. But it's only happening in the real, in real ways in, in a place like New Haven. In, ter- in terms of lived experience, Silicon Valley is a really interesting model. The companies like Google and Facebook have tried to reinvent what the workplace looks like. They've tried to uh, make it a completely frictionless working experience for for employees. I mean, you know, it's like it, so the fact so not only is food free throughout the day, but it's like of course food is free. It's a given. It's a given that you know there's you know you can get really great coffee on every floor there are these juice bars there are these you know you know it's it's healthy food it's food that helps you to think better yep. you know you need a haircut Alexia you go right like downstairs that. and you grab it yeah. right but so so as this so as this so thinking about lived experience seems really important to me and so from the city standpoint what what are what's the thinking about making the lived experience of people who live in new haven more frictionless yeah that's an interesting question i you know i think that 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 is uh, that's a cultural conversation about what each person's definition of friction is, mm. because the most obvious thing for a city is a lot of people think that uh, low friction means free parking mm-hmm. in a big asphalt lot somewhere. Sure, um, we think that friction is having homes and businesses and restaurants near each other so you could actually walk someplace or that's take low a bicycle. Friction. That, that that's low friction. Low friction. Right. For somebody else, that's very high friction. They go, oh my goodness, there's no place for me to park right next to where I want to go or it costs me money to park there. Or, you know, it's late at night and I have my bicycle, but I don't want to have to ride back. So what I would, I might do that in the countryside, but I don't want to do that here. But other people say, I do want to do it. So, you know, I think that this whole issue of friction has become very much a cultural thing. And I think we have to admit that what you've described in terms of Google um, or uh, Amazon or, or any of these environments, I mean, think of the Google buses in San Francisco sure. and how, how that created a whole craziness for people who were picked up with these big luxury liner buses that sort of came through streets, had their own bus stops and basically created a private transportation system. And that was low friction for somebody who wanted to live in a very fancy neighborhood of San Francisco, but right. also take the two hour drive or one hour drive through the traffic to Silicon Valley and a high white lot of Wi-Fi, and be able to talk about programming with the person sitting in the leather seat next to them on that big luxury bus. But for other people that was really obnoxious. Mm. Um, 
so so I think that this is something that we have to sort of define because America defined low friction basically as the 1950s suburbs, right. cul-de-sacs, garages, cars, separation of work and retail and living into three different zones. Mm. Um, now we're trying to bring it back to really sort of 1930s standards, 1920s standards, mm. right. where everything was jumbled together, where people lived on top of each other, where the bar was around the corner and and you worked, uh, maybe you did piecework at home. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're writing software, that's sort of like what you had in a tenement on the Lower East Side, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I, I think we're going to find this. And what we have decided, because we see this, the surveys that come in, and we see that about 50% of people say that New Haven is fabulous, inexpensive, amazingly diverse, just great things going on. And about 50% of the people say it's expensive, it's dangerous, it's dirty, it's too hard to get around, they feel scared all the time. So we've realized that there are two cultures out there. And what we have to do is make sure we get a higher percentage of the people who love cities and want to be in cities. If your goal really is to sort of have free parking and to uh, have everything beautiful and no cigarette butts on the ground. You know, sure. you may not want to be in a city. So we're looking for people who actually can appreciate the fact that parking in downtown Boston is $40 a night and it's $8 a night in New Haven and the food's just as good. And they go, wow, what a deal. Not people who say the parking's free in Brantford and I can't <laughs> have to pay eight bucks in New Haven. Two different yeah. worlds. Absolutely. I'm curious, have you been able to throw any deep learning at those surveys? Have you discovered any kind of patterns about, like, you know, Well, this is the real and, pattern and, that we yeah. found. What we found is that we kept trying to find uh, the person, uh, you know, to go back to the old uh, 1980s marketing things. We, we, we tried to find the person who thought it was great tasting and less filling. And what we found out, it was actually different people. Some people really wanted it to be great tasting and other people really wanted it to be less filling. I mean, that was the old beer commercial. Right. And so what we decided is we want the great tasting people. Right. And if you're only cared about less filling, don't come here or come here at certain times when the parking is cheaper or when it's warmer or when other things are going on. We have a festival. I mean, we, we, can, we can do things for other people, but we find that a lot of people have come to Connecticut to be away from cities and other people have come to New Haven to be away from big expensive cities or because they were bored in this in places that weren't cities. And so we have to embrace the fact that we're a city and we have to embrace that. So, you know, when, when, when you say inequality or somebody says, my God, why is there so much inequality here? Um, and this, I'm not trying to be just polemical here, but what's wrong with having very, very wealthy people living next to people who just arrived two weeks ago from a foreign country looking for opportunity. And in New Haven, they can literally live three blocks apart from each other. I think there's magic in that. As long as those opportunities actually exist. And I well, but think that's, they're... that's, but see, that's different. <clears throat> see, um, we're again, we're, we're 80 jobs here. There are 200 <clears throat> million jobs or 225 million jobs in America we can't be responsible for every kind of opportunity. What we can be responsible for is fairness. We can be that sanctuary city. We can be responsible for making sure that people are welcomed into their educational environment. They're not bullied. That the police officers treat them with respect. Absolutely. That we pick up the garbage equally in all neighborhoods. All we can do is to say, if you look at 3,000 cities in America and you're arriving here or you're looking at a place to stay, 
If you pick us over another place, we want there to be quality in that decision. The opportunity is all about, look, Connecticut is a very slow-growing place. The, the sad truth is we're a very fair place for people to get started, but the truth is we aren't the best place for opportunity. You might be better off in a less fair place, a much more hostile place, an Alabama, a Texas, a Florida, where you won't get treated well, where there won't be good health care, where you won't get treated well by the police, where you might be subject to much more discrimination. But you know what? Life is a trade-off. And I think this is one of the things that we also have to embrace. We've created a fair environment that doesn't mean we're going to create, in every case, the fastest growing environment for everybody. And that's one of the challenges that I have, because that's certainly something that people would like and I would like to be able to provide. How could I have the growth and dynamism of Texas, but the fairness of Connecticut? And that's sort of a challenge that I have every day. Got it. And and do you find that there are there's an inherent trade-off there? Absolutely. You bet there's a trade-off. How, how could there not be a trade-off? Um, we're, for, we're for higher living wages. Uh, we're for unions. We're for treating people with respect. Um, a lot of businesses go where they have the highest return on investment. The highest return on investment might be where there are people who are willing to work for less, where the environment it perhaps is not protected as well, where... Lots of different things. Uh, you know, unfortunately, yes, life is not always fair. So you're talking about businesses that can take advantage of externalities by leaving out, by leaving here and going elsewhere. I mean, you know, you're talking about sort but of... There's a reason why in every survey, uh, states like Texas uh, and uh, Arizona and North Carolina, to pick a few, come out as the very top states. And states like New York and New Jersey and Connecticut come out as the least attractive places for business. I think that's bunk, and I think there's a lot of just BS there. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think there are a lot of businesses that wouldn't be caught dead leaving New Jersey or Connecticut for a variety of reasons. But Connecticut hasn't been doing that well lately for, for another set of reasons. But look, um, of course there's a continuum here. Uh, and with again, with all due respect to the global economy, there's a reason why a lot of businesses are moving to China, where people make a dollar a day or a dollar an hour instead of that same factory that once upon a time might have been in New York or in Detroit or someplace where people were making $80 an hour. I mean, the global economy, and that's why people in this last campaign were so worried about trade and worried about globalism and things like that, because sure, a lot of businesses would much prefer to have a, be in a factory where people are making a dollar an hour instead of $80 an hour and where they don't have health benefits. And if they get sick, you just sort of say, good luck. I hope your kids take care of you. I mean, there's a, there's a harsh world out there. Connecticut has tried very hard to, to file off the edges and to make it as smooth as possible. And because of that, it has become a little bit harder to attract investment and, and businesses. And so that's, that's our challenge. When we're in New Haven, I think we're in the epicenter of trying to have that fairness and that equality, but also growth. And I think we're one of the few places, I'm proud to say, I think because of our leadership of the mayor and, uh, and also because the Board of Alders and everybody keeps, us, keeps our feet to the fire all the time, where we're actually trying to accomplish that stuff. Where we're actually, we are accomplishing it, not always as, as well as we'd like to, but we're really trying to have both of those ideals held up at the same time. Absolutely. I'm kind of reminded by Leonard's Cohn, Leonard Cohn's lyrics, you know, it, 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 it ain't exactly real, or if it's real, it ain't exactly there. But 
I see a lot of hard work being put into it for sure. Yeah, and, and this has been going on for ages. I mean, I think this goes back to, uh, to the Dick Lee era and it certainly goes, and it is certainly what we are, are so proud of being in the HARP administration is we don't think there's any place, there's any government entity right now in America, which can honestly say that we are totally on board with the idea of fairness and treating people with respect and trying to get as many different uh, opportunities to them in terms of programs, also the educational issues, trying to make sure that everybody from the, the moment they go to Head Start or pre-K to the time they go to Promise and get that grant, uh, get that scholarship to go off to college, right. they're right here. But at the same time, we're trying to bring in businesses and we're trying to figure out how to develop a service economy with the restaurants so someone can just come right into town and get a restaurant the next day. May not be the greatest job in the world, but a job is a job. Right on to getting a, a degree uh, and working through Gateway to Southern through our bio ladder and getting a job at Alexion. So we do think we're trying to do it all, and we're balancing our budget too. So that's that's hard to do. Mm. So anyway, it's, it's been a pleasure. Tough job, tough to juggling act. Matt Neverson, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. 